Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Bibles, if you would, and turn to Exodus chapter 13. We read for this week chapter 13, verse 17 through 15 through 21. God is the great warrior is the title of today's message. Some of my favorite things to read and watch are stories of great warriors who rescued people and defeated evil. Anyone else love those types of movies and stories? I love them. Most of us remember growing up loving stories of heroism and the battle of good versus evil. We all want to see the bad guys get what they deserve. We want to see good triumph over evil. We love books and movies that that depict this struggle like Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, The Magnificent Seven, so on and so forth. We look forward to action movies and comics that depict the adventures of the Avengers or the Defenders, Superman, Spider-Man or Batman or Thor or fill in your favorite hero. Even those of us who are holy like our heroes and scripture are full of great warriors that fought against overwhelming odds. People like Joshua, Gideon, Samson, David and the exploits of his mighty men. We are drawn to Daniel who faced down uh, lions and Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who, who survived a fiery furnace. We are amazed at the story of Elijah confronting 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah in a worship battle. The writer of Hebrews recounts the victories of those who by faith faced the enemies of God and even gave their life, yet even in their death gained victory. Today we'll read of one warrior who surpasses all of those both in scripture and in fiction. Now last week we read that God gave the Hebrew children instructions for the Passover meal, the feast of the unleavened bread, and the consecration of the firstborn. Each of these events were signs to future generations that pointed to God's sovereignty, providence, and faithfulness that were to be kept at its appointed time from year to year. We learn three things from that is that we learn that disobedience to God's word always leads to judgment and death. There is no escaping the wrath of God. God provides a way of escape and salvation was the second truth, which led to our third obedience and faith is required to obtain this great salvation. We also learn that the Passover lamb pointed to Jesus, the true lamb of God, who offered himself as a substitute sacrifice to pay for the penalty of our sin. And as our substitute, Jesus brought us, uh, bought our redemption. He paid the penalty of our sin. He satisfied the wrath of God against our rebellion, and he brought us reconciliation with God. But as we go forward in Exodus chapter 13, in today's passage, we'll read that God is also a great warrior. A warrior who defeats the enemies of God, the enemies of Israel. He rescues them from slavery and then he dwells among them. Read with me if you would silently as I read out loud. Exodus chapter 13 starting with verse 17. Moses records when Pharaoh let the people go. Remember the death of the firstborn. He now sends them away. 
God did not lead him by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, and Joseph had, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And in verse 20 of chapter 13, and they moved on some Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. Father, we ask for you to give us wisdom this morning to sermon as we consider your word. We thank you for this record of these ancient people. And Father, as it points to your greatness and you as a warrior, Father, may we find strength in the fact that you are this great warrior that we're to read of. And Father, I pray that you would just give us a heart that loves you. And Father, may we respond to your Holy Spirit's work this morning. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. So I want to give you some observations just from this passage and as we go on. As we come to this point in our reading in Exodus, God's judgment on the Egyptians has finally caused them to release the Hebrew children from their slavery. 430 years after setting foot in Egypt to escape famine, the Israelites are free people. With a strong hand, Scripture tells us, God has rescued them from bondage and given them instructions to follow Moses to the land that he had promised to them through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And though they are dressed for battle, they are like young David in King Saul's armor. It just doesn't quite fit. Understanding that they are not yet ready to face war. Remember, this is a generation that knows only slavery and fear and most likely are very timid. Yahweh instructs Moses to take them a longer route than the normal commercial roads. And here I give you a little map real quickly kind of to follow through. You can kind of see here, here on the monitors. And if you'll see there's yellow. Here is what now they would say is the modern path of Moses. This has been in dispute for some time. Some would have him going down further. But many, usually if you'll see there, you'll see that, that uh, the pharaoh there, usually they would head towards the Mediterranean Sea, which was a shorter route up to the land of Canaan. But they did not take that. There would be many Egyptian uh, uh, garrisons and military outposts guarding the line there. So he doesn't take them that way, but he takes them into the wilderness. And that's where we find that they are today. True to the promise of their fathers, that their fathers made to Joseph some 400 years earlier, this passage tells us that they faithfully removed Joseph's bones and take, with, take them with them as Moses took the bones of Joseph with them, Scripture says. This is a symbolic act that serves to highlight the faith of Joseph, who knew that God would one day bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt back to the land that God had promised to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 50, Moses records the last words of Joseph, who said, I am about to die, as he, he's there on his bed talking to his brothers and family. But he says, God will visit you and bring you up out of the land to the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So for over 400 years, this had been passed down from family to family. Remember, when we go, one day God will come. One day God will lead us out. We cannot forget Joseph's bones. Now the writer of Hebrews would commend Joseph's request by noting 
that it was by faith Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Joseph trusted in the faithfulness of God's promises and in his goodness to his people. Even through 400 long years of slavery, oppression, suffering, and even death, God heard, saw, remembered, and knew. God is faithful, amen? And we see that in this symbolic act. The end of chapter 13 ends with a great word picture of God's faithfulness and protection. Look at verse 21 and 22 of chapter 13. Moses writes, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night a pillar of fire to give them light, that they may travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart before or from before the people. Now in these two verses, again, we get a wonderful picture of Yahweh, of God. He presents himself as a pillar of cloud and fire to direct them, but also, as you, we shall see as we go through Exodus, as a way to protect them. What I love about these verses is that Moses' record is that it did not depart from before the people. It's a type of Emmanuel, God with us. This is like the burning bush is a supernatural event that serves as a theophany. My personal view is that this is a pre-incarnated appearance of Jesus. This pillar would lead them through 40 years of their wandering in the wilderness, and it points to the truth that God promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. By the way, the same promises that he makes to you and to I. Now chapter 14 sets up the decisive battle between Pharaoh and Yahweh. In fear, Pharaoh and the Egyptian had expelled the Israelites from Egypt. But after burying their dead in a time of mourning, they realized what they had done by letting them go. Look at chapter 14, if you would, with me as we continue on in verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So in verse 6, he made ready his chariots and he took his army with him. And he took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going uh, out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued him, all the Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Hahorath in front of Belzephim. By the way, I notice if you just cough when doing these Hebrew names, it works really well. But <laughs> Yahweh was not done with the Egyptians just yet. Yeah, they had let his people go, but there was one decisive battle to be done. One more time, God hardens Pharaoh's heart, causing him to gather his elite army and multiple chariots, over 600 chariots. They were the, the world's greatest power. And in a frenzy fury, they marched towards where Israel was camped. Whether their intent was on re-enslaving them or extinction is not very clear to me. But in any regard, they were a formidable foe that brought fear to the Israelites when they looked back and saw the Egyptians marching against them. In fear, Moses says, they cried out to him in Exodus chapter 14. Look at verse 11. The Israelites cry out, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us to die in the wilderness? 
What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. So here we're getting a picture, a heart of why, the, why God didn't take them. They were not ready for war. This is a very timid people. For it would have been better, they said, for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. How sad. They would rather serve these people and allow their children to be cast to the crocodiles rather than to be delivered from them. You're now getting maybe even a fuller picture of who God is trying to rescue. He's rescuing people who don't really seem to want to be rescued. Like people dying in a, in a ship that is going down, they will not grab a lifesaver or, or some type of boat. They'd rather just go down, thinking that life is better. It is better to die. You see a people, really, as you look at this, without hope. They're looking at national, generational suicide. Now this fear maybe seemed difficult for you and I to imagine. They had just witnessed all the plagues that God had miraculously used to judge the Egyptians. And at the same time, they saw God's protecting as he delivered them and protected them from these very first things. Yet fear is their first emotion. A lack of focus is evidence as we go in verse 10 or go back to verse 10 of chapter 14. For when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. I'm sure this was a devastating look. They thought they were probably done with Pharaoh and the Egyptians, but they look and here comes the, 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 the world's greatest army coming against, against them. There's no way out. Over 600 soldiers and elite army, army men coming. The sight of Pharaoh and his large army were more impressive to them than the supernatural pillar of cloud and fire that was before them. They took their eyes off of Yahweh, leading them to fear and panic. That lack of focus and dwelling on the uncalming army leads them to doubt that God's plan and purpose for them that ends with complaints and despair. Sadly, they seem to think that they would have been better off as slaves for the Egyptians. And let me share with you, this is what happens. Christians, this is what happens when we take our focus off an almighty, powerful God who has proven himself to be faithful and protective of his people. The cares of this world, the problems we face, the suffering we endure become so overwhelming and leads to fear. And instead of casting our cares on God, we begin to doubt the goodness, the love, and the promises of God, which then leads us to complain and despair. Like Israel, we look back to the good old days. We forget that trials and temptations and testings and troubles are ordained by God to test and strengthen our faith. You see, it's during those very times that you and I are to focus intensely on God, remembering His faithfulness, providence, and sovereignty. But yet, like Israel, we look onto the armies of Pharaoh and we fear and we lose sight of who God is. But thank God as we continue through this passage, Moses refocused their attention as any good leader and any believer should do. Look at verse 13 of Exodus 14. And Moses said to the people, 
fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Then underline this next verse. Because you and I need to understand the truth that's found in verse 14. The Lord will fight for you. And you only have to be what? Silent. Moses calls them to action. Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. Oh, if you could do that today, Christian. If you could do that for those of you who have not yet seen Christ. Just stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. He gives a short, powerful speech to encourage them. He also puts the enemy into perspective. They are not as powerful as Yahweh. Not only that, the children of Israel will not even have to lift a finger in their defense. God has a plan and he's going to fight in their stead. Look at verse 15. For the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. As I'm reading this, I'm almost saying like God is saying, what are you doing? Just do this. Why aren't you even thinking about it? But in verse 17, again, I will harden the hearts of Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Once again, Moses is told to use his staff to perform a miracle that is unbelievable, supernatural. We all know this part of the story very well. The waters of the sea part so that Israel may pass through on the side unhindered on dry ground. Remember that dry ground is what they pass over. God promises to finish what he started with Pharaoh in Egypt. He will cause them to rush after the Israelites to attack them only to find defeat and death. And we see that in verse 23 for Moses writes that the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and horsemen. Of course, they see Israelites going in, so they're in their frenzy, fury, their desire to take them back or to cause to extinct them. They just go in. In verse 24, And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of the fire and the cloud looked down on the Egyptians' forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic. So not only does that theopony give a direction and guide, it also protects. Verse 25, it clogs their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. Their, their armaments were no longer uh, successful and could be used. The Egyptians said, then let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Entering the sea with extreme confidence in their own power and military might, they begin to panic, realizing that they face a foe more powerful and mightier than themselves. Their chariots are useless as they become clogged in the mud that just a moment ago was dry as the Israelites walked across. Literally struck between a rock and a hard place, we read in verse 26 that then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, 
The sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians began to flee from it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, so that not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall in them to on their right hand and on to their left. Now, you know, we're not told if Pharaoh himself was lost in that rush of water, but he lost all that went with him. 600 plus chariots gone, his army gone, drifting dead in the sea, defeated. In verse 30, we read that the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And Israel saw the great power that Lord used against the Egyptians. So now the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Whatever the final ending of Pharaoh, they are a defeated foe finally. Israel is encouraged with renewed focus on God as they believe in Yahweh and his servant Moses. Through this miraculous event, God's purposes are completed. Going back to Exodus 14.3, we read that God had held Israel back from crossing the sea earlier to set a trap for Pharaoh. For going back in verse 3 of chapter 14, for God had said before this event ever happened, he said, for Pharaoh will say of Israel, they have wandered in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. They are now trapped. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, God says, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. See, God had a plan and purpose once again. We thought that it was done with the death of the firstborn. I think that would be it. They, they get to leave uh, Egypt. They plundered it. They go in victory, but yet still God was not done. God's plan and purpose was threefold. He says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart one last time. And I will get glory over Pharaoh. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. If they had not known it through the ten plagues, God says, I have one more event that will solve it for all time. So during these first 14 chapters that we've been reading through our series of Exodus, it shows that Yahweh is the true God who reigns as king over not only Israel, but also as king of Egypt and the king of the world. As important as powerful Pharaoh was as king of Egypt, even he serves the very purposes of God. As a true king, we see four truths about Christ's reign or about God's reign. It's here on the monitor if you'd like to take notes. First, we see that God as the true king will confront evil. You and I today live in a world many times when we think that evil has free reign. When will righteousness, when will justice come? The Old Testament is filled with his people crying out just as they did in the days of Egypt. When will justice prevail? When will God come? And we live in a day in which it seems like evil triumphs all the time. But let me tell you, as God, as the king, as Landon read earlier, he will confront evil. Do not despair. Do not fear the evil that comes. You know, and I want to say that evil comes in many forms. It comes in the, the, in the visage of a person, of a king, of a ruler, of a politician. It comes as your employer. It comes as a business, a company. It comes as sometimes your wife, your children. It may come as a family member. 
It may come in the face of natural disasters, financial disasters. It even comes in face of death. But let me tell you, God will confront all evil. The second thing that we see as the king is that he redeems his children. He does not leave them enslaved. Just as he redeemed them from slavery, we have seen through this that God has redeemed us through slavery. Amen? We are no longer enslaved to the penalty and to the power of sin. And one day, he will bring us free from the presence of sin. But not only does he confront evil and redeem his children, but as the true king, the one powerful king, we see that he also leads his people to the promised land. He leads them to the promised land. As one day he will lead us to the land that he has promised us, the new heaven and the new earth. And then fourthly, and this is so important, so important as you get number four, is that he dwells among his people. He dwells among his people. We think of as Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus coming and living within us. But yet even then Emmanuel was there in the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. And he was with them and he dwelt among them. And that's going to be a wonderful picture that we will see as we end Exodus here at the end of November as when the tabernacle comes and God's presence comes and dwells in the tabernacle among his people. We do not have a king that is like Esther's king who we must be invited before we can come before him. The Bible tells us that we can enter his throne boldly, coming before our king, who's not only the mighty king, but he's also our loving father who has adopted us as his own. So how did you see God this morning? Why do you fear that which God is greater? Even your suffering, your pain, your problems, your troubles, and even death, serve the purposes of the one who reigns. Theologian Dan Ortland writes that this passage of God leading Israel out of Egypt, saving them by parting the Red Sea, and judging Egypt by bringing the sea back upon them, becomes a symbol of God's saving work throughout Scripture. Nehemiah would write after the exile into Babylon, he would say to the Israelites who, bring, who come back out of Babylon, who come back into a city that is destroyed, whose walls are crumbling down, after 70 years he would say, Stand up and bless the Lord, your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. And you say, why would we? We are a defeated people. We have been living 70 plus years in a land that was not ours. We come back to see our cities destroyed, other people living in our homes, our businesses gone, animals roaming the streets. We have no walls to protect us, and our enemies hate us and despise us. That would be the mind of those coming back from the exile. So what does Nehemiah do? He reminds them of a generation, generations before them, he says, stand up and bless the Lord. Why? Because you saw the afflictions of our fathers in Egypt and you heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all of his servants and all the people of his land for they knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is today. You divided the Red Sea before them as he speaks about God so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone in the mighty waters. By pillar of cloud you have led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night for them 
uh, tonight to light for them the way in which they should go. When he's speaking to them, he says, remember what happened to our fathers. Remember how God has not only redeemed them, but he restores them. So a people who has been redeemed for Egypt, he says, I want to know that you will not only be redeemed, but now I will restore you. Same thing comes to us. The psalmist would sing the words, In the sight of their fathers he performed the wonders of the land of Egypt. He divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the water stand like a heap. In the daytime he led them with cloud and all the night with a fiery light. And in another song he would write with a strong hand and outstretched arm, For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the sea in two, for his steadfast love endures forever. And he makes Israel pass through it. And you can guess what he writes. For his steadfast love endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his hosts in the Red Sea, for his steadfast love endures forever. You and I need to get that tattooed, if I was for tattoos, on our foreheads and on our hands. For his steadfast love endures forever. These signs are signs and symbols to remind us of the greatness and the power of our God. In the same way, you and I should remember all the diverse ways that God has delivered us from the enemy, encouraged and strengthened us in our time of need. His steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. Now this victory of God over the Pharaoh will lead to a song of worship as you and I move to chapter 15. One theologian notes that Israel's celebration of God's power and justice is the first worship song in the Bible. And it looks back to the Exodus and forward to Israel's entry into the promised land. In Exodus chapter 15, if you're there with me, in verse 2, the word salvation is used for the very first time in the Bible to describe the Exodus as an act of divine deliverance. In Exodus 15, 11, the song claims the Exodus event shows that Israel's God is the true God among all others. The song looks forward to a future, time, a future Exodus that will involve God bringing Israel into the promised land saving them from the hostile nations and settling them in his presence. In this, song, we, in this song, God is depicted as a man of war. One pastor remarks that today's passage reveals that our God is a warrior God. After making it through the Red Sea unarmed, Moses and the Israelites celebrate God's great victory over Egypt with a song of worship and praise. Specifically, the Lord is called a man of war, a warrior who fights for the good of his people. It is in the Almighty's nature to wage war against those who would rise up against his name and against his children. You and I can rejoice in that our covenant-keeping God will never leave us or forsake us as his outstretched arm is ever-present to defeat the enemies of his kingdom. And so we come to the title and the truth that I want to share with you this morning. As we go through this song of Moses in the first few verses of chapter 15, I want to point out that God is a great warrior. That God is a great warrior. Look with me at verse 15, starting with verse 1. Is we're going to see that God is a great warrior, as you look on the screen, knows the true enemy. He knows who the true enemy is. Look at the beginning of chapter 15. 
Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Could you underline that in your Bible? You need to understand that. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down in the depths like a stone. Instead, now here's what's important. This is why I say the Lord knows the true enemy. He's a warrior who knows who the true enemy is. And please follow with me because I think you and I fail in this so many times. Instead of pouring out his wrath on the children of Abraham, his own children who doubted him, who feared the Israelites or feared the Egyptians more than God. They doubted God and they doubted Moses. Instead of pouring out his wrath on them and on those who complained against his own plan and purpose, who feared the Egyptians more than himself, Yahweh focuses on the real enemy. You see, you and I are not his enemy. We read last week that Yahweh declared that on the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. God understood that Satan and his demons are behind the worship of false gods. And he works to influence people against following God. It is Satan who seeks to destroy the image of God by enslaving and impressing and killing those who he has created. Scripture informs us, that, uh, forms us to be aware of the true enemy. And you may see yourself as we read this. And by the way, I made a statement that we are not God's enemy. And I want to retract that because there are a way in which we are. But we can share a little bit more of that later. Jesus warned the Pharisees in John chapter 8. Jesus says, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth. There is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks of his own character, for he is a liar and a father of lies. You and I, when we lie, when we deceive, when we misdirect with our words and actions, the Bible says that we're following our father. You must be careful. Take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 6. six. Again, turn to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. In this passage, the apostle uh, Paul informs us of the cosmic battle between God and Satan. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You have heard me say it from this pulpit before, and so let me say it once again. Our enemy is not our spouses, it's not our children, it's not your boss, it's not your employees, it's not your neighbor, your fathers, or your mothers, it's not the politicians or bureaucrats, all who make our life difficult and even unbearable at times. Like the Israelites, you and I many times focus on the wrong thing and that can lead to fear, discouragement, 
and complaints. We begin to doubt the goodness, love, and the very promises of God. Yet, the Apostle Paul teaches us that you and I must focus on the real threat, on the real enemy of God, and how we respond. In 2 Corinthians, Paul would write, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power in destroying strongholds. Many of you are fighting the wrong enemy. We are fighting those that God has called us to love as ourselves. How can we fulfill commandment when we think and see each other as enemies? It could be a boss. It could be a politician. It could be a country. It could be your spouse. Instead of loving them, we've maimed them as the enemy. God could have wiped out Israel. And there are many times as he talks to Moses, as you go through Exodus, and God said, hey, stand aside. I'm ready, to, I'm ready to take them down. God truly knows who his enemy is. It's that which propels us and pushes us, and uses our de- desires and passions against us. So God is a warrior who knows his true enemy. But he's also a, also a great warrior who is more powerful than his enemies. Number two, he's more powerful than his enemies. Let's continue in the song of Moses in verse 6. Your right hand, O Lord, is glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. Verse 8, at the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The flood stood up in a heap. The deep congealed in the hearts of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My uh, desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. But in verse 10, you blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Moses' song declares that God's weapons are indeed powerful. For he's a powerful God. For example, with his right hand, he can turn the raging sea to his advantage. He is sovereign over the elements and he bends them as he wishes to destroy those who would oppose them. Many times in scripture we see God destroying the enemies of Israel with miraculous displays of, pl- of, po- displays of power. From keeping the sun from going down, as we'll continue in, Mo, in, in Exodus, from going down in order to fight, to defeating an army of 10,000 people with just a, with, with a light and a, and, a, and a horn, to defeating Goliath with just a sling and a stone, and so on and so forth. We see a God who has a complement of powerful weapons. Though you and I are not faced with the same type of enemies that Israel faced, God is still more powerful than Satan. The Bible tells us that we do not need to fear the roaring lion, the great dragon and the serpent, who has great schemes and great ways of attacking us. The Satan, or attacking us because it says, you are from God and overcome them, he says of those who believe in him, of his children. He says, for he who is greater in you, or who, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You and I must realize that we have a God who's much greater than the one who attacks us. 
Again, Paul teaches us that you and I, because of God's great weapons, have the ability to fight back against the schemes of Satan. For we can destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And that you and I, the Bible tells us, are able to take every thought captive to obey Christ. You and I have the power to defeat the schemes of Satan who uses our own passions and our own desires against us. The Bible says we're to take those thoughts captive. God has given us these weapons and he commands us to take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the evil day. He says, stand fast with your belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness of the gospel of peace. He goes on, in all the circumstances, you and I have a shield of faith which we can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one with the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. God has a powerful weapon. As a warrior king, he has powerful weapons that can slice and dice through the enemy and leaves us protected. But not only that, the third point is God is a great warrior who fights for his people. Who fights for his people. Continue on in verse 11 of chapter 15. Who is like you, O Lord, Moses sings among the gods. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, and doing wonders? Who is like you? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed and you have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Can you mark this down? You need to get this for today. Yahweh, God, the divine warrior, fights on your behalf. You and I are not left to our own devices without his power. He wields his power on our behalf so that we can truly, what we can truly claim is it, so we can truly claim it is not our own strength. The psalmist sings, the Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts and with my song I give thanks to him. He would go on to sing, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Paul has taught us from the church of Colossae that Jesus has disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. What is interesting is that God saves them, saves Israel before they fully believe. Earlier we saw that their fear of the Egyptian caused them to doubt God and his salvation. Yet instead of calling for their repentance, he delivers them first. He, their response to his saving power is then repentance and belief. This is similar to our own salvation. Romans 5.8 tells us that God shows his love for us, that while we were set sinners, Christ died for us. When we were still rebellious, disobedient children, God in his mercy chose us, redeemed us, and adopted us as his own. We are not left to battle the curse of sin and death ourselves. God sent a Redeemer to give His life as a ransom for His children. And John tells us that the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Paul would tell us, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God is made alive together with Him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, he goes on, nailing into the cross, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them 
you and I need to realize is that God is an ultimate warrior who fights for his people. Too many times you and I are looking for ways to fight our pain, our suffering, our financial decisions, our troubles by ourselves. We're looking for, give me 10 things to do. If you look through, through many books, it's, it's, it's how-to. Many messages today are how-to. How to do this, how to do that. You and I are looking for a problem solver. Just give me some things to do. A, a DIY, what's DIY? Do it DIY. You and I want salvation by DIY. We want a spiritual sanctification at DIY. Just do it yourself. Just give me, put it on Pinterest, put it on Instagram, tell me how I can do it. But what we see here is God has done it for us through Jesus Christ. And all we have to do is trust in Him. And many times it's our silence and our prayers and our praise and worship that allows God to complete His plan. Sometimes you and I need to be still and know God instead of just working around frantically trying to solve everything ourselves. Fourthly, God is a great warrior who strikes fear in the heart of his enemies. Verse 14, the peoples have heard. They tremble. Pains have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Tear and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are as still as stone till your people. O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which is your hands, which your hands have established. The displays of this power also meant to form kind of a psychological warfare. Edom, Moab, Philistia, and Canaan all trembled with fear when they heard of the Lord's salvation of Israel. Time after time, Yahweh puts the king of this world in this place. For those of you who are trembling of Trump or Trump trembling at North Korea or other types of things, let me share with you. Psalms chapter 2, the psalm sings this, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, speaking of Christ, saying, Let's burst their bonds in part and cast away their cords from us. I think Dustin was telling me this week the, that the Communist Party in China meets together every five years. And it was this past week, and one of the decisions was they were going to put more of an impetus on on, on squelching the Christian church. Is that not correct? Something of that. They wanted to squelch the, the voice of Christianity because Christianity is growing by leaps and bounds in the underground church in China. And here you can see it. Let's burst their bonds. Let's cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. God is a great warrior who one day will stand even before the kings of this world and those who stood against his anointed and they will give an account. One theologian notes that in this new covenant age, Satan and his minions fear the power of Christ that manifests itself among Christians through the Holy Spirit. You and I should not be surprised that the enemy will do everything in his power to silence the witness of the church. But Jesus fights for us, wielding the sword of the gospel to convert the nations. He turns foe into friend and he makes the impenitent ripe for the outpouring 
of his wrath. Scripture tells us that the demons tremble. They believe that God is one, you and I. He says, you do well, for even the demons believe and shudder. When confronted by Jesus, the demons would shout out, you are the son of God. What What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But as God's children, you and I have no fear of the wrath and power of our Almighty Father. But then for those who do not submit to His rule, they are warned, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. We have a mighty warrior who's our God and King. But this battle between Pharaoh and Yahweh over Israel was not the final battle. There was one battle that was even more important than this one. There's something greater than Egypt out there facing. Death and Satan, our greatest foe, tried their best to defeat God, the Messiah. Nevertheless, God raised Jesus from the dead proving that not even the most powerful enemies will have the final say in the war between heaven and hell. You and I can be confident to do great things for God because Christ is on our side and he has overcome death and the evil one, meaning that life will have final say when we are resurrected to set judgment on the enemies of the church. God, the great warrior, has defeated Satan at the cross. Yes, Satan is still alive, And he, like Pharaoh, still seeks to harm and paralyze the children of God. Yet in Revelations chapter 20, verse 10, we see his final end. John writes that the devil who was deceived uh, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The song of Moses ends with a fitting theme or fitting tribute in verse 18. The Lord will reign forever ever. Moses would finish up the last part of our reading, describing how the salvation of the Lord led to worship. Let's finish up in verse 19. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Verse 20 gives us a description that Miriam, the sister of Moses, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after with her tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Here's what I want to get today. As the ultimate great warrior, God is worthy of our worship and praise. Satan has not thwarted or derailed the plan of God and his purposes one iota. God has secured our victory and salvation. He has given us the powerful weapons of the spirit and the sword to battle a defeated enemy. The Bible calls up to rise up and praise him. I'd like to end with these words of encouragement. It's on the monitor, Psalms 118. Where the psalmist says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. And let those who fear the Lord say, 
His steadfast love endures for, uh, forever. Out of my distress I call on the Lord. The Lord answered me and he set me free. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in him and triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Trust in the one who is a great warrior, who did all that we needed to defeat our enemies and redeem us and adopted us as children. With every eye closed and every head bowed, just take you for a moment to pause, to consider, and to pray what the Holy Spirit wants you to do today. Maybe you're fighting the wrong enemy. Maybe your focus is on the wrong people. Instead of loving others, you're fighting with those that God has actually called you to love and to serve. But you need to realize that God has called you to something much greater. Know who our enemy is. Know that he is a powerful God who has a plan and is more powerful than his enemies. Know that he is a God who fights for his people with powerful weapons that he has made available to you and I. And that he strikes fear into our enemies that they are more afraid of him, of him than he is, of, or that our enemies are more afraid of him. And you and I must recognize that he fights for us. Let's trust in that this morning, would you? Father, we just ask for your grace. We ask for you to continue to be with us. Strengthen us, help us see the truth that's found here in Scripture. We thank you for being that great warrior, the warrior that we need to redeem and rescue his children, not only the children of Israel, but those of us who are also the Abraham, or the children of Abraham, the children of promise. We thank you for calling us to that this morning. Let us rise up and praise you. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.